meditation, basically that when you sit in meditation and you try to concentrate on the breath, how do you approach the thought? And I think the question was very much in terms of, you know, uh, do I need in a way to have compassion toward the thought or toward myself having thoughts? And I think this is in a way an important point. And, and I know at the beginning when we sit in meditation, I don't know why, but we really think it is terrible to have thought. But as we meditate more and more, we realize it is normal to have thought. And so we then don't see thought as intruders anymore, but you just see thought as what your brain does, what comes out of memory, association, whatever it might be. And so in a way, the coming back to the breath, I think that's what is very important, that it's not kind of, you know, thought are bad, coming back to the breath is good, but it's more thought arise, but our intention is to pay attention to the breath or to the sound or to the question or to whatever it is. So at that level, I would say yes. If the compassion can make you, can in a way dissolve the judgment, then yes, of course, you can be in a way compassionate to yourself, to the thought, but personally, I would I very much see it as, in a way, over time, you really <clears throat> don't mind to have thought, because they're just thoughts. They really just, it's kind of like flotsam and jetsam, and, you know, they just arise. And then, and generally, as soon as you see them, then I would say, as soon as you see the thought, generally, there is a coming back. But of course, if the thought is very strong, there will be another rising of the thought, and there will be another seeing of the thought, and another coming back. So in a way, to see very much, to try to let go of that idea of fighting the thought. We're really not fighting the thought. But really to work on this intention. I think the intention is to be aware. And that's actually what will make you aware that you are thinking the intention. And, of course, sometimes if the habit is very strong, then you might have to do what I would call firm resolution. But, again, that is not fighting the thought. And to me, this is the way I dealt with my daydreaming patterns. Because one of my main patterns when I used to meditate previously was to be lost in this endless daydreaming. I mean, I used to spend hours daydreaming on the meditation cushion. And, you know, if I was, if I had, and woof, I would go into the film. And it stopped when one day I decided, uh, but after knowing it, I mean, after learning to know the taste, the, the way it worked, this uh, daydreaming stuff, then just one day I was sitting in meditation on teaching a retreat. And I just, I think that was the power of the awareness. I decided, okay, I am going to be stronger than the thought, stronger than the daydream. So what I did for an hour was I would do the question and then the daydream. Then I would say, no, 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 
back to the question. Then do 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 do. Back to the question. And for the whole 45 minutes, that's what I was doing. Back to the question. So in a way, coming back, retrieving myself from the very beginning of the daydream. And I did this for, but, and I had no, it was, I did not feel it was a fight. It was just this feeling of firmness, of really steadiness. I can do this. And to come back again and again and again. And after that, it went. And I've never daydreamed again since then. Because the power of it was gone. And now I can't even, you know, kind of get excited about if I had, if I was. There is nothing. Nothing whatsoever. It's gone. It doesn't mean I don't think of something else. I mean, but at least this pattern is gone. And so, of course, there is also what I would call this firm determination. And sometimes if we have enough stability, openness, and power of awareness, then I think also we can deal with thought in that way. And at the same time, I know, you know, sometimes I sit in meditation and it comes and goes, and I don't worry about it. I know it will pass. And then there will be all the time where there will be little thought. And that's okay too. So that's what I wanted to say to that question. And... This brings me, in a way, to this sutta, this short sutta I would like to talk about, and it's called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, which is in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length saying, it's number 20 about. And this is, in a way, discourse on the form of thought. And personally, I think this is, in a way, the Buddha, again, being very practical. And I only kind of... uh, read about this about maybe 15 years ago. And I'd done lots of meditation before, Zen meditation. And then when I was uh, read this sutta, I thought, this is what I do. And I think in a way, this uh, method that the Buddha is, is giving us to deal with difficult thought is what over time we learn to do ourselves through the meditation. So in a way, this is I want to present it as, in a way, possibly a reminder of what you do already, or also as something one can, in a way, use in a creative way. So, basically, what the Buddha is saying in this sutta is that if you're sitting in meditation, and if you have really a very negative thought, born out of desire, of aversion, of confusion, then the first thing you can do is to turn to a positive, skilled thought. So, and I think this is also what we can do in daily life, not just on meditation. That in a way, often what we do is what I would call negative exaggeration and proliferation. So you might be sitting here and thinking, gosh, you know, this is terrible, that fellow is terrible, always terrible, so terrible. And in a way, we really make it, I think, often very exaggerated. And the Buddha say, when you see yourself being caught in this negative thought, can you turn it to a positive, skilled thought? And he said it's like if you have a big peg, a carpenter, if there is a big peg, and with a little peg, he's going to kind of remove that big peg. And so for us to see if maybe we already do that or if we could consider, like 
I could say an instant is when you think of somebody and you only see the person as being so negative. Then to see, wait a minute, is there something positive I can think about this person? Have they done something kind to myself or to others in the past? So in a way to break the negative picture and kind of give it a kind of a little balance with some positive, positivity. Or another one I remember for myself, I was waiting for someone and at, you know, two o'clock and they were not there. And generally when this happened, we think, you know, what's the matter with them and don't they, you know, we kind of get excited. We get generally kind of rather impatient when we wait for somebody. And instead I thought, but maybe I should fall and ask, what has happened? So instead of going into resentment, I turned it around and I thought, I phoned the person. She said, oh, I thought it was next week. Mm-hmm. So in a way to see, in a way when we really caught in negativity, can we, through the power of the awareness, I mean, you must see it first, then turn it to a positive skill thought. Then the Buddha says, if the negative thought resurfaces continue, can you contemplate the peril of the thought? Because I think sometimes we know that if I continue with this thought, this is going to lead me in a very dark place or in a very angry place. And I think it's important to see because sometimes, you know, you feel, yeah, you know, like uh, some time ago I had a little kind of fiery discussion with somebody. And this was in a long time. I really was angry. I was so frustrated. And I was really angry with the person. And, you know, and that was another Buddhist teacher, you know, so I mean, bad form to be angry. And, you know, the Buddhist teacher remarked upon that, uh, and not on the condition why I was frustrated. That's another story. And so, you know, after that, I left, I went back home, and I could see my whole, you know, thinking, you know, yeah, you know, I'm going to send an email, and I'm going to tell him like it is, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But I could see this would not be a good idea. This would not be a good idea whatsoever. It would not resolve anything. And so I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and finally I sent an email which was not aggressive and who at the same time stated my position. And then the person said, oh, and my apology, of course. And he said, oh, thank you. Because in a way, I think what is important is to see you know, you want it. You want, in a way, revenge. Often we kind of burn for revenge. But to see this is not really going to help. This is not going to be creative to improve the situation. Then there is if the negative thought resurface continue. And the third method is very interesting because this goes against anything, everything we've done up to this moment, which I think is wonderful. And this is forgetfulness and lack of attention. So that if there is a negative thought, which is very powerful, try to find a way to forget about it, try not to pay attention to it. And he said it's like if you saw something really heavy duty, you would just turn your thing away from it. And this, I think, is a very important point in terms of the 
meditation awareness we do. Because often we have the feeling, no matter what, how bad it is, I must be aware of it. And the Buddha is saying, no, 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 no. Because if you stay with it, actually it's going to increase. So then what you need to do is in a way to find a way to forget about it. Find a way to move your attention away from it. And to me, this is what I would call creative distraction. Find, to actually have what I would call a tool, a toolkit of creative distraction. And when you know the trigger or what is really going to take you in a very dark space, to actually move away from it through this creative distraction. Maybe reading a book, maybe talking to somebody, maybe going for a walk. But to really see that there is also a place for that, that we don't just have to endure it. I think this is very important to see that. Then there is the fourth method, is to attend to the thought function and the forms of the thought. And the simile, the example the Buddha gave, is that if you uh, were to be walking, and you suddenly would think, why am I walking? I could just stand. Then you would think, why am I standing? I could just sit. Then you could think, why am I sitting? I could just lie down. And he said, you know, in a, in quickly you would move from the position which is the most energy to the one which is the least energy. And so actually what I think he's saying here, can we inquire into the thought itself? Who is thinking this? Why am I thinking this? Is this true? Because I think it's very much kind of in a way, often we... We're caught in the thought and we think this is the only thing I can think in this moment. This is the true. This is true. This thought is true. But not necessarily everything we think is true. So in a way the Buddha is saying, look into the thought. Inquire into it. And in a way I think it's very close to what is this? What is this thought? Could I think something else? And then the fifth one is, and this all the therapist must kind of close their ears, by his mind, subdue, restrain his mind. So here, yes, in a way, it could seem to be talking about repressing. But personally, I see it differently. I think in a way the Buddha is saying, because he said by the mind, subdue, restrain the mind. And I think what he is saying is that actually the mind, one's own mind, is stronger than any one thought. Because often we caught in some thought and we feel, I can't but think that. But the Buddha is saying, no, you cannot reduce yourself to a thought. You cannot give over your power to any one thought. You are stronger than any one thought which might arise in your mind. And I think it's very much in a way saying, you know, we have more power than we think we have. And recently I had this experience. This is, uh, I gave my manuscript to my editor. And for the first time in my career as a writer, my editor 
is a little abrasive and relatively dismissive and possibly a little mean. That's my point of view. I'm sure he thinks he's very helpful. And so, you know, I get the manuscript with all these remarks, uh, some of them a little you know, tough. And then, you know, I talk to him on the phone about one chapter he really dislikes and he really kind of, you know, let me know what he thought of that chapter. And after that, I could see in my mind, you know, this, <laughs> you know, kind of in a way, the, 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 the desire, the thought of, you know, really kind of, you know, well, you know, if he's mean, I can be mean too, you know, and, you know. And uh, kind of I could see, in a way, the temptation, you know, to kind of, you know, go back with some kind of really nasty email back. But seeing, you know, that I did not have to believe the thought. I did not have to act upon that thought. That it was not a good idea. It would not, in a way, be helpful in the long run. So in a way, whenever that thought arises, I look at it and say, uh-uh, not this one. <laughs> so in a way, to see, it doesn't mean that we don't have the thought. Of course, time to time, you know, I think, huh, what am I going to say in the acknowledgement? And then I think, let it be, let it go, you know, later, later. You know, to see, we have more power than anyone thought. I think this is very important to see that. So this is... Um, Vitaka, Santana Sutta. And then I wanted to, in a way, talk a little about some of the theme Stephen I've mentioned, kind of, you know, a little about the Buddha nature, about the awakening. And what I like to consider a little tonight, it's in a way the sudden aspect of the path and the gradual aspect of the path. And in a way, very much for us to see that the two are very much part, two facets of what we do when we practice meditation. And because sometimes one has a feeling that either it's one, either it's other. But the great master who founded our temple, Master Bojo, in Korea, in the 12th century, he followed this idea that there was a sudden insight which was followed by a gradual practice. Then you would have another sudden insight which again would be followed by gradual practice. And I think it kind of, in a way, to me makes a lot of sense in terms of our practice. As Stephen was saying today, in a way, at any given moment, we can be a Buddha. And also at any given moment, we can be a sentient being. And so to see that there is an element of gradualness in the practice and also an element of something sudden happening. And this is interesting because sometimes we feel that you know, we have a terrible meditation and everything is going really not so well. And then suddenly we sit or we walk and suddenly it's like kind of a veil has lifted and we feel quiet and we feel clear. And we would have never thought that it was possible because of what had happened previously. So to see that kind of suddenness of the practice too is there. And historically, in a way, this is best represented by 
in a way, the two poems and a kind of a Zen story. Because you had the, the fifth patriarch who was wanting to give his mentor uh, his kind of succession to somebody else. And so he announced to the monks in the monastery in China in the 7th century that whoever writes a poem about their understanding and the one who has the best understanding, then that person will be my successor. And every, all the monks in the monastery thought, well, the best one will be the abbot. So we won't do anything, but the abbot, you know, will really, I'm sure he will kind of write a good poem. So then the abbot felt, well, you know, everybody expects me, you know, to be up to it, so I really should write something. So finally he decided this is what I'm going to write, and he wrote it on the wall so that the master could pass by and see it. And this is what he wrote. The body, the body, is a body, B-O-D-H-I, the awakening tree. So the body, this physical body, is the awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. Shall I read it again? So, the body is an awakening tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times, we must strive to polish it and not let dust collect. And so, in a way, what, of course, a great master passed by, read the poem, and said, yes, yes, very good, very good. Everybody should recite it. And in a way, what uh, Shen Shu was saying in this poem is that within this body, within this physical body, we have the potential, we have the seed of awakening. That the mind is like a clear mirror. It is spacious, it is reflective, and it can be non-grasping. And so that the practice, in a way, is to keep that clear mirror free from dust by cultivating the three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And so in a way, this is what I would call the practical approach, to kind of, in a way, cultivate ourselves. So the clear mirror of our being is not kind of, does not let the dust kind of accumulate so easily. So that in a way, the practice is to kind of pass a kind of dust away, dust away the defilement, that when a defilement arises, then dusting away, dusting away, kind of, you know, with that gradual practice, that very pragmatic approach of, in a way, kind of cleaning our body, cleaning our mind, cleaning our heart, being care, seeing, you know, what is it that is skillful, what is it that is unskillful, and you know, over time, letting go of what is unskillful. And then, of course, Another person in the monastery heard this poem recited, which, uh, called Wei Neng, and he thought, oh, I have a much better poem than that. So he had it written too, and that's what he said. Body, B-O-D-H-I, meaning awakening as no tree. The mirror also as no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? So I repeat it. 
Awakening has no tree. The mirror also has no stand. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? And so here, basically, Huineng is saying awakening is not containable, it's not fixable, it is not specific, it is not set anywhere. So in a way, it's very much kind of you know, showing us how it would feel to be in a non-grasping state, to actually kind of not grasp anything, that kind of you know, wide, you know, with this kind of aspect of the practice where it's wide and nothing can stick anywhere. And also what he's saying, the mirror cannot be contained within any border. It's expensive. It's wide open. It reaches everywhere. And, of course, nothing is sticking because, in a way, the, the glue, the glue, the adhesive quality of the whole being is not there. So, in a way, nothing can stick. And in a way, to see that this is what I would call a mystical vision of the practice. And I think, in a way, both dimensions are needed. I think it's very important to see that, in a way, there is this development aspect of the practice, <coughs> that gradually we practice, we meditate, we concentrate, we inquire, <coughs> and there is progress. We have a little more spaciousness in the mind, we have more openness, more compassion in the heart, and we kind of more creatively aware. And I think in a way, this is why people continue to meditate, even though it might be difficult. And often that's what people come and tell me. Though one time somebody comes to tell me and say, in the middle of a retreat, my practice is really bad. You know, I've been meditating for 10 years and I really can't concentrate. And I said, but doesn't it make a difference in your life? Or she said, oh, yes, sure, sure, it's wonderful. It makes a great difference in my life. And in a way, to see why does it make a difference in life because of what I would call the de-grasping effect of the meditation. And then once I asked her a little about meditation, how it possibly could have improved over 10 years, she admitted that, yes, you know, she had a little less thought, she was a little more calm. So in a way, to be careful of the assumption sometimes we have that we're not making any progress. I think if we really did not make any progress, I think we would do something else. <laughs> you know, that in a way, we continue to do meditation because we can feel the difference in our daily life, but also in the meditation process. So there is, in a way, that gradual process. Over time, things develop. But there is also the sudden aspect when things are not so engineered and where there is a sudden opening. It can be on retreat, it can be in our daily life, it can be in nature, that suddenly we see something we've never seen before. Suddenly we let go of something we used to grasp at. And we actually don't tell ourselves, don't grasp. It's just in that moment we can't really do it. And to me, sometimes when we sit in meditation on retreat, we have this experience that suddenly you feel your heart open. And the way I would describe it is that you have no problem with nobody. You know, you, you cannot stick anything anywhere because there is this sudden openness. The, all the obstacles to the heart being open have dissolved. 
And this is the way you can't engineer it. But as you practice, in a way, it helps it to happen. And so, in a way, to see that the suddenness of the practice and the gradualness of the practice, these two aspects, what I would call the width and the depth, are complementary. But actually, they're two aspects of the practice. Like we are, I would say, at the crossroad of these two dimensions, the depth and the width. And our practice, in a way, is standing at this crossroad. That at any given moment, we can go this way or we can go that way. But in a way, one is not better than the other. But also to see that if we just put emphasis on one aspect, actually the practice will be missing something. So if we just have only gradual, if we only see the gradual aspect, then actually we can become quite deterministic. They are step by step, and you must go through these steps. And I had a friend once who went on this retreat in Asia for 10 days, and every morning somebody would knock at the door and said, and kind of open the door and said, did you experience this yesterday? And the next morning, did you experience that? And my friend did not experience none of it. (laughs) So she really felt like, you know, this is not working. And of course, there can be this gradual step that some people will go through, but some people might not necessarily do that. So in a way, to be careful, if there is just a gradual aspect, then it becomes a little too fixed a little too determined. And then everybody, in a way, has to feed the model. When it might not, in a way, the, gr- the gradual might not be the same. The development might not be the same for everybody. Everybody has their own rhythm, their own condition, their own way. And also, if we, because it's so kind of um, enticing, this mystical vision of the practice, if we kind of only see the certain aspect of the practice, then sometimes it is not very functional. You know, you might be sitting in meditation and you have this amazing experience that everybody has a Buddha nature. Everybody is a Buddha. Wonderful. Great. You know? But once you get out of the cushion, can you see your neighbor that way? Can you see the person at the supermarket counter that way? Or was it just an experience you had on the retreat? And then it goes, and this is it. Nothing is left. But you have this feeling, yes, you know, I am awakened. I have seen everybody's Buddha nature. So I think, in a way, we have to be careful, because often in this sudden kind of aspect, the first thing that seems to go in that mystical vision, and I don't know why, is ethics. You know, people feel they're awakened, and then they can do whatever they want. Because they're above conditions. And they have lots of sex and drink alcohol. It's kind of strange. I mean, they could choose to kind of go and help the poor. No, no. It's kind of strange. You know? So in a way, to see, I think it's important that the sudden aspect and the gradual aspect are together. That there is this balance of, in a way, the kind of the gradual progress with the sudden inside. And actually that when we are a sudden inside, actually then we bring that inside into our daily life so that it becomes organic. And then we truly see our neighbor as a Buddha. And in a way to, to see how can 
any insight we have, any meditative experience, any mystical vision, how can I bring this and make it in a way experiential in my daily life? Instead of in a way it staying more like a memory, like a kind of a thing, which is not kind of something I can bring to my daily life. And I want to finish with two poems. And these poems are by this uh, nun. And uh, recently I had a book which was published and in it there is my life as a nun, but more important, there is a life of another great Korean Zen nun. And at the end of the book there is a poem, a poems of what I would call awakening, of practice that I translated. And this nun was an amazing person. She was very small, and she was very humble. And at the same time, I, whenever I met her, my heart felt so warm and so kind of, kind of just so happy to be with her. She was such an example of the practice, of the humility, the wisdom, the compassion of the practice. And at the same time, you know, she would do, I mean, even age uh, 75, 80, she would do all the 10 hours of practice. And then whenever she had free time, she would kind of, you know, sweep the leaves and we could spend time sweeping leaves together. And she was amazing. She was not a great teacher, but she was a great person and she was very respected. And this is two poems that she wrote, which I thought would kind of talk a little about what I've just mentioned. So that's the first one. Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, sees I. To say, I saw the nature, awaken to the way. What rubbish. <laughs> then the other one. Clear water flows on white rock. The autumn moon shines brightly. So clear is her original face. Who dare say it is or is not? So, that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Uh, so... Yeah, and then there. Yeah. yeah. Some some uh, meditation teachers advise um, meditators, especially beginning meditators, to use mental noting of what's going on as a mm-hmm. powerful tool. But you you haven't really stressed that. But what is your view about the usefulness of? That? You see, uh, again, I did not have the the time to go into everything. Sometimes, instead of the feeling tone, I say to notice the thought. But again, the way I would teach it is to focus on the breath, other things, and then time to time to, ne- to not name what took you away. Planning, daydreaming, speculating, as a mean to see a little what are the patterns, to be more conscious of it. So as a sideline to do it a bit. I am aware of this noting, uh, but personally, I think with some people it could be very useful as a way to help them to focus. But sometimes I think it can become a little too analytical in the moment, a bit too, people become tense trying to 
to note everything in the moment. And, and, and then sometimes, you know, they have to remember it so they can tell the teacher about everything they noted. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure it's a very... Uh, all my friends who have done it say it's a very powerful method. And at the same time, I'm aware that some of my friends enjoy to do Dzogchen as a kind of counterbalance to that noting, I think. You know, because Dzogchen is just to sit, in a way, to just sit and not focus on anything. So I would say, yes, it can be a useful tool, but to be careful for each individual to see, is this noting helping me to be quiet and clear? Is it making me tense? Is it making me sometimes too mental? If somebody is too intellectual, I would say don't do too much noting, you know, uh, because sometimes it can become a little difficult. So again, one can play with it in different ways. But as a way to kind of get to see what we feel, what we think, sometimes I think time to time it can be useful. Uh, behind and then Margaret. What is, just two references, one, what is the reference of the sutta that you started with, the sutta, the Yeah, this is the Vitaka, V I T A K K. H. Sorry, what do you start with? V. V, v. like Victor. V, yeah. I. Yeah. T A. K K H A. Twenty. About twenty in the middle length saying. Buddha nature is always clean and pure. Where can dust alight? Thank you. Okay, so Margaret, yeah. Um, could you just say a few words about the, the commentator inside or the narrator, you know, continuously, oh gosh, I've Yeah, yeah. This is this is my latest book called uh, "Very Kind of." You know, it's one of the greatest titles of the universe. Uh, <laughs> women in Korean Zen. <laughs> Very kind of uh, creative title, uh, and in it there is my life as a nun. Yeah, and the life of this other nun. And then I talk yeah a lot about the question. Uh, in terms of the commentator, you see. Uh, the silence makes us very aware of the commentator and the, uh, the meditation makes us very aware of, yes, I am, <laughs> I am talking to myself a lot of the time. I think, you know, either I am describing something, either I am remembering something, either, I mean, sometimes sometime in the silence you, will say, you even say, what about me? You know, it's very interesting, you know, uh, what you kind of, you know, 
what you're going to tell someone else about what you are experiencing and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and to see, you see, the, I would say that the, actually over time, over time, the commentator really goes down. Really, that, that I can say that in a way, because you see, at the beginning we really feel there is all these levels. There is a, the personal command, there is a personal plan, there is on top, I mean, there is, a, as you said, one feels there is a, several things, discourse actually going on uh, at the same time. But over time, actually, as the sense of self becomes a little less strong, because actually, what is it that makes this sense of self? Actually, a lot of what makes what I would call the selfing is that commentary. Is that actually constantly this inner language is reinforcing the sense of self in a positive way or in a negative way. It goes both ways. You know that in a way, the, the more the self is strong, the more actually we do this, we kind of making up continuously this sense of self. But I think over time, and also at time in the meditation itself, on a retreat, you can experience yourself differently. And I think that's why suddenly you feel much more quiet and clear because you don't have all this kind of making a building up. And actually what you have is more, I would say, this open, experience of being alive. So I would say this is the way I would see it in terms of we are building it, we are making it, and to notice when it is really strong and when it's actually very light. We can also notice it when we are with people. If we really truly listen to somebody and we bring that meditative awareness, and we get out of the way, then again, we can have that experience where we're not actually commenting straight away what they say. But we really just, and we're not preparing, we're not doing anything, we're just listening. And again, we, we feel ourselves differently. So I would say, yeah, everybody experiences it. Uh, and over time, and at different times, you, when it goes, you, you experience, I would say, the selfing very differently. Because we are, in that, we are building a lot, our sense of self. Yeah, actually, actually my question is quite connected to that business of the narrator. Um, but more in terms of, you know, technique and how, how to deal with um, using questions in, in meditation. Um, I find that sometimes if I'm using the wrong question, what is this, it can become a bit sort of mechanical after a while. Um, and and you, you seem to have quite a sort of creative approach to meditation. So um, one, one thing I, I'd sort of try is to actually vary the question itself. Something, you know, and sometimes I find that helpful. I, I feel that you know, if I just change it to sort of who's breathing or you know, a question like that, then, and I vary it within one sitting, that sometimes that can be useful. 
but sometimes it can flip me into this kind of narration business. So I was wondering whether you've got any practical advice in terms of whether it's, it's better to stick with a more disciplined approach and maybe say pick one question at the beginning of the session and I'm going to stick with this for the whole sitting. Or is it, is it, worth, is it valid playing around with things within one sitting? Yeah, I would say either or, because you see, it is true that at, at the beginning of doing this, what is this? Uh, the question, there is a bit of an aspect of it which is repetitive but like any other technique. You know that sometimes going back to the breath can feel mechanical and repetitive. The same as listening to the sound or watching the body. You can have this feeling of kind of, this is very mechanical, it repeats itself. And there can be this feeling a little with the question, what is this, what is this? But I think this is part of the practice, that, you know, at times it's a little mechanical, then, at, then suddenly it will have more that kind of feeling. Because over time, actually, the words themselves actually dissipate in importance. And actually what you left with is that nearly energetic kind of sensation of questioning, that you don't actually have to say the words. So at that level, you could try to, yes, sometimes people feel the need to change the words of the question to kind of bring more liveliness, but then you have to be careful that it did not become like a, what I would call proliferation, that actually it become very abstract. And there is the, the, the kind of the juice of it, the, the, the focus of it uh, has gone. So you can try, and when you see that it, it goes into that, then you can come back to just one, I would say. Or you can just go back to the breath also. Because, again, I don't think the question, the breath, sensation, or sound are opposed. I think they are very complementary. So in a way, it's this not kind of like, oh, now I'm doing this, and I can't do that. But, you know, you, you, you could kind of do the question, and then you might feel a little kind of stuck, or then you can go back, open to the sound, you know, and even who is listening who is hearing the sound, you know, and you can incorporate it with something else. Okay. Uh, yes, at the back. Um, you were saying that um, how do we take any insights we get from our meditation back into our daily life? But I wasn't quite sure whether you really explain how we do that. And so how do we? <laughs> well, I think this is a practice, you know. And because, you see, I think when we have a, an insight or we see something we've never seen before, when we have it, when we have the experience, it is new. It is like, it feels so real, so tangible, so there, in a way. But very quickly, over time, in a way, the experience dissipates. So that newness, that very experiential bit about it dissipate, and then what you are left with is more like a memory. So I think, in a way, one can't really recreate the experience, but I think one can have, in a way, the, the memory not as something, oh, if only I felt like that, but more knowing that you have known this. For example, me and, me and the turd in the toilet. 
You know, when I saw that, you see, now I feel differently to things who are dirty, who are smelly. It doesn't mean that I'm always, you know, totally equanimous, you know. Ooh. You know, I mean, if I see a dead rat, if the cat brings a dead rat, you know, I kind of, ooh, I can generally ask Stephen to get rid of it, especially if it's a big one. But generally, you know, I try to kind of handle it, do it myself. So, but still, because I have experienced that, then there is really not as much of that exaggeration. So in a way, to bring, kind of, it's kind of to bring the, to, to that seeing, to bring it with you, but you won't have it in the same way. So, so that's one way. Another way I would see it is like, for example, when I had this uh, experience of seeing how self-centered I was. That was many, many years ago in Korea. I saw it very clearly for the first time that everything I, in this inner commentary, everything was self-referential. And maybe... Pff, 3% was other referential. It was all about me. I mean, it was very interesting to really, suddenly really see that selfie in the commentary. And I saw it very clearly. And in a way, after that, my practice is in a way to diminish the self-centeredness. And that can be done in many different ways. The way I listen to people, the way... I do think the way I am with others. Uh, so, you know, also the way I think. So in a way, you see something, but in a way, for it to become organic, again, back to this creative awareness. In your daily life, you have to work with it. Okay, so I think maybe our time is up, and now there is walking meditation. <laughs>